I was headed home after three weeks of being away from my family. I was getting onto the plane late at night in Nairobi. I think there are around somewhere between 30 and 50 Kenyan women that all look to be in their early 20s for the most part, who were wearing matching t-shirts and they were clustered up all around the room. And they didn't seem at ease. They seemed uncertain, nervous. And I just wondered, who are all these women wearing matching t-shirts? And I just said, you know, where are you headed? Have they told you, the people who are going to employ you, what will happen to your passport when you get to Saudi Arabia? Will you get to be the one who stays in control of that? Or is the person who's going to be employing you going to be in control of your passport? I work a lot. She don't give me the food. And they all, to a person, said that they had already been told that their employer would retain their passport upon arrival. And that's when I asked, you know, what, why is that? Why, why don't you get to keep a hold of your passport? And they said it's to keep us from running away. Please help me, because I'm tired, I'm tired. I want to back Kenya. This is Until All Are Free, a podcast by the Exodus Road. I'm your host, Preston Goff. I don't know about you, but I have a rhythm that I follow anytime I fly. And though it's been too long since I traveled, thanks COVID, I can easily imagine trudging through airport security, stopping in at one of those coffee stands selling an overpriced burnt Americano, and then making my way to my gate with headphones in, the rest of the world tuned out. I can own it. Talking to strangers isn't often a priority for me when I'm traveling. But the story that I'm about to share with you has me questioning that routine. In this episode, we're sharing a story told by Sarah Ray, who's one of our board members here at the Exodus Road. Sarah has worked in poverty relief and social enterprise for over a decade as the founder of Yobel Market and Nima Development. Sarah's story begins as she's returning home from a short trip overseas in Kenya, where she was working as a trainer to nonprofits in the international development space. Though Sarah had flown to and from Eastern Africa many times before, this trip was very different. So, you get to the airport and, you know, African airports are special. <laughs> you, you have to go through about seven security checks, it feels like, unloading your baggage, reloading your baggage, unloading your baggage, reloading your baggage. And half the time there are brownouts, the electricity isn't working, or the right person is not there to stamp your passport in the place that you need. So you're just hoping that you make it through in like the three-hour time window that you allotted to get to the airport before your flight. So you finally make it through, and this time was no exception, like it was a hassle all the way through. And we, we made it to the other side, and you know, you go grab your coffee and 
ditch the rest of your shillings before you get on a plane to go home and and you stall to the last minute because at the last minute they're going to shove everybody into this holding room before you can get on your plane where there's no restroom and there are twice as many people as there are available seats and this is where you're going to spend the last hour sweating before you get on the plane you know so it's like it doesn't even matter that you took a shower before you got to the airport because you're not going to get on the airport in a, any sort of comfortable fashion so I'm sitting in the holding tank waiting to get on the plane and it's crowded and I like wedge myself into this little corner space on the floor against a wall and I'm hugging my knees and I'm holding my carry-on bag and I'm just trying to stay out of the way because there are hundreds of people shoving past trying to find their way to their friends or their family or out to the restroom or back. So I'm sitting there and I'm just ready. I'm ready to go home. I miss my son. I miss my husband. Um, and I'm looking forward to the air-conditioned comfortable seat on that plane. And as I'm waiting, just to kind of take my mind off things, I start looking around the room, people watching, wondering who I'm going to be traveling with. And I noticed something that I hadn't seen before. It was a groups of young Kenyan women who were wearing matching t-shirts and they were clustered up all around the room. And um, they were different colored shirts depending on the group. So one had like a white shirt and one had a green shirt and one had a blue shirt. And they all looked... Um, fairly new to the idea of travel like I I would have bet that none of them had been on an airplane before just by looking at them they didn't seem at ease they seemed uncertain nervous many of them were slouched down in their seats trying to sleep and I just wondered who are all these women wearing matching t-shirts I'm looking around and I decide I want to know more about these women. So I get a little bit closer and I start to read the emblems on their t-shirts. And they all have a logo and an acronym and then they say something to the effect of um, labor agency or workforce. This is not a common occurrence. It hadn't for you. been for me. And you know, it might have been just because typically when I fly home from Africa, I don't fly through the Middle East. I don't fly through Dubai. Um, and so this is the first time that I had done that. And, and maybe it is much more common. I'm, I'm beginning to believe it's much more common. I remember a trip three years earlier in Uganda where I'd been working with a safe house in in the process of doing some business training there. And the women that were a part of the safe house, many of them had been repatriated from Middle Eastern nations where they had gone in search of work and had been promised a good job and fair wages and the ability to help their families back home. And they would be working in, you know, the industries of housekeeping or domestic servants or even in as cleaners in hospitals and restaurants. And so these women, you know, would be promoted or recruit, I guess the word is they'd be recruited uh, for these positions and then their employer would pay for their their plane ticket their passport their visa everything they needed to get to country and then they'd work a contract and get paid monthly which on its face sounds really hopeful right it is yeah it, it does sound hopeful and that part you know on the front end those agencies present this job and they present this contract and that all may be very legal and very well but then when the woman gets into the situation where they are essentially saying I'm going to go work for a family in the Middle East or for a company in the Middle East that I know nothing about I've never met them in person they've never had a video conference or any kind of interaction and they just go there um, show up on this contract where they've promised to work for two years they can't break their contract per per Middle Eastern law without extreme repercussions 
because they've been paid for in advance. So they're essentially indenturing themselves to these companies and to these families they know nothing about. And once they get into the situation, they're trapped. So that's those are the suspicions, right? Bouncing around in your head in this moment when you're like, I'm just exhausted and want to go home. You're sitting in, in this holding area waiting to board. And what happens? I just think they don't know what they just said yes to. And right now they're innocent right now. They have their autonomy, they have their freedom, and everything in me wants them to not get on the plane. <laughs> and I know that there's nothing I can do about it. I guess what I'm thinking in my mind is what can I possibly do in this situation where they're, they're already in possession of their plane ticket, they're already planning to go, they want to go, they're hopeful about this opportunity, they need it, their family needs it, and their family's depending on them. So I get closer, and as they're starting to board us on the, tra- on the plane, I ask some of the girls, who I hope speak English, and so many Kenyans do, that, that they, they did, fortunately, speak some English, and I just said, you know, where are you headed? What are you planning to do? And I just kind of played dumb and just asked a little bit about their story, asked their names, um, asked if they were excited, and just tried to build a little bit of trust with a few of them. And sure enough, like they were headed to Saudi Arabia, which I thought they were going to Dubai. And then when I heard Saudi, my heart like sank even further um, just because of the known abuses towards women that take place in that country. Um, so they were headed to Saudi and I said, what are you going to be doing there? And they said, we're going to be house cleaners because somebody paid for us. And those were their exact words. We're going to be house cleaners because somebody paid for us. And so we got on the plane, sat to our seats. Um, my mind's like going crazy and I just start texting friends who are experts in the field because frankly, I, I am just at the end of the day a concerned citizen who has a little bit of knowledge in the realm of human trafficking, but I'm no professional in this space. So I wanted to check what I was seeing and my emotions and my gut reactions against people who do this for a profession. So I reached out to several friends that I know that work in that counter trafficking space, two of which were Matt and Lara Parker. And thankfully, uh, Lara wrote me back immediately with empathy and concern, uh, affirming that what I had seen was something to be uh, aware of and to push into a little bit more. And she just asked a couple of questions. uh, What nationality were the girls? And what language did they speak? And just encouraged me uh, to continue the dialogue with them and find out as much as I could. And shortly after, Matt came on board and just said, yes, this sounds suspicious um, and better, better to ask questions, better to step in than to do nothing. And so he urged me to get in contact with the flight attendants on board who should have training in, in recognizing potential trafficking situations. And so that was kind of my next action step as I waited for the seatbelt sign to be turned off. Is there any part of you that's like, am I crazy? Absolutely. Yeah. Or am I just, am I getting this totally wrong? Um, Or am I just being, you know, that white savior that wants to intervene in somebody else's life for my own, for my own sense of purpose or well-being somehow? Um, I got up and I wanted to just, before I reach out to the flight attendant, I wanted to just (laughs) confirm what I was 
thinking at least one more time. So I, I got up and I moved around the plane. I just kind of looked for empty seats and I sat next to, um, any of the girls that were wearing the matching t-shirts. I would, I would borrow a seat next to them and try to get to know them a little bit and just kind of would sit next to them and, and ask about their family, ask about where they were going, why they had, um, accepted the contract, what kind of job they had been told they would receive. And then if they were seemingly open, then I would ask a little bit more. I'd say, hey, you know, have, have they told you, the people who are going to employ you, what will happen to your passport when you get to Saudi Arabia? Will you get to be the one who stays in control of that? Or is the person who's going to be employing you going to be in control of your passport? And they all to a person said that they had already been told that their employer would retain their passport upon arrival and that's when I asked you know what why is that why why don't you get to keep a hold of your passport and they said it's to keep us from running away so they already knew to a degree more than what I realized when I first saw them sitting in the waiting room that they would know and they already had some sort of impression that what they were headed into might not all be sunshine and butterflies. In that process, I met two older women and both of them had agreed to leave their four children. Um, They each had four young children at home for the two years that they'd be working in Saudi Arabia in the care of grandparents. I mean, they were telling me with tears in their eyes, like the look on their face was just dejected. And like, as a mother who had just spent three weeks away from my young son and was missing him with every fiber of my being, could not wait to get home and see him, I just, my heart broke. I could not imagine what these moms were feeling as they were sitting on a plane knowing they were not gonna hold their babies for two years at the very least, you know? But that was the best thing that they felt they could offer their families in the situation. And so they were there. And that was what I found to be the common story. They were every girl on the plane, every woman was there because they had the hope of bettering their own future or the future of their loved ones by agreeing to this contract and they all wanted to be there. So I sat back down in my seat and at this point I just thought, you know, I am going to reach out to a flight attendant and just see what they think of what I've learned so far. So I passed a note uh, to the next one that walked by, and within a few minutes I was called to the front of the plane, and I met with the head flight attendant um, as well as the captain of the plane. And, yeah, I was really impressed that he took the time to come out and meet with me and take my concerns seriously. So um, I would encourage anyone who encounters a similar situation to not be afraid, that this is something that they are trained to handle and that they want, they want to ensure that they can play a part in, in preventing the trafficking of human beings on their aircrafts. Yeah, I mean, how reassuring for you to have like, I mean, kind of boldly taken this step and for them to respond like almost just right alongside you and like wanting to, to be a part of that solution. Like that's just, an, you can't think of a better response, right? Yeah, no, it was really, it was really, um, affirming. The head flight attendant was Kenyon herself, and she had seen a lot of these contracts come through like this. She was no stranger to these work contracts. She herself actually employed a woman from Kenya on one of these contracts as a nanny, and that was that was what allowed her to do her job. And she s- said that 
she loved her nanny and treated her like a princess because without her, she wouldn't, she wouldn't get to work where she was working. Um, so she had really, I feel like a, a very grounded perspective of what was happening, which was helpful for me in the moment. But at the same time, she recognized that situations don't always end as well for these women. And so she suggested that we talk to the girls and that she speak to them in Swahili to help set them at ease and find out if any of them would be willing to show us their contracts. Because the contract was essentially the key component to whether or not we would suspect fraud or coercion in this situation. And so we'll call the flight attendant Judith. Judith invited whoever was willing to come back to the flight attendant quarters and show us their contracts and talk through any concerns that they might have. And so a couple of the girls came back a few minutes later and they shared their stories and they showed us their contracts. And one of the girls in particular, uh, Maria, had not even been the one who signed her contract. Her contract had been forged by the recruiting agency. So that would have been an example of one of the more illegal situations. Um, And another girl just didn't even understand what her contract meant. Um, Several of the women we spoke with didn't even have their contracts in their possession, and they had never had them. And I don't even know if they had them, if all of them would have been able to read them. They were written in both English and Arabic. They were five-page contracts. And I think, you know, they stated the things you would suspect, like these women are on a two-year contract. They're paid $250 a month USD for their work that will be wired to a bank account in Kenya each month and they um, were not allowed to break their contract if they broke their contract they were subject to the local Saudi law and what was really really disconcerting to me was that out of a five-page contract two pages entirely were devoted to the repatriation of the workers remains should they die while in service to their family in Saudi Arabia two pages (laughs) And so I asked Judith, is this something that happens often? Like, are these women dying in their, in their contracts? And she said, you would be surprised how many of them we see come back in body bags. And I don't say that for shock value. I say it because she said it so candidly as someone who works in the airline industry and is part of the process of repatriating these women back to their families if they don't make it through their contract, unfortunately. And she said just the previous week, she had a woman who had finished her two years and was coming back in a wheelchair and her face and her head were still bleeding profusely from the beating she'd received. And that's the reality. Like, sometimes they wind up with a good family and sometimes they wind up in a highly abusive situation. And so Judith very kindly and gently tried to share that with the girls that were in the back of the plane that had chosen to come to talk with us. And she said, you know, I don't want to scare you. That's not what we're trying to do. You may wind up with a really good family, and that is what we hope for. And she shared about her nanny and how much she loved her nanny and how she hoped that this would be the situation each of them found themselves in when they arrived in Saudi Arabia. Um, She said, but 
there's also another reality where you might be ill-treated and you might be abused physically or sexually and you need to understand that that could happen to you. And here's what needs to happen. Um, if you find yourself in that situation, you need to try to get away. And in order to get away, you have to retain your passport because it's your ticket to freedom. And that's what I tried to reinforce with every woman that I spoke with. Your passport is your freedom. Do not surrender your passport. And that's something that I would urge every person who might be listening to this that suspects that they might be seeing a similar situation. If you do nothing else, try to encourage them to not surrender their passport. It's theirs legally. They shouldn't have to surrender it. Judith went on to encourage them as they left from the airport to go to their new home and their new work situation to try to memorize as many landmarks as they could along the way in case they needed to escape and find their way back at any point. And then Matt had urged me to share with as many girls as I could um, his personal WhatsApp number to be able to reach out if they needed help, if they needed intervention, as well as the Exodus Roads Facebook page and their tips email. And so after that, I went and sat back down and I spent the remainder of the flight ripping pages out of my journal and scribbling as fast as I could 30 notes to each of the girls that were on the plane, telling them that I cared for them, that I that I was really praying for them and hoping that they would they would wind up in a really good situation, um, but that if not, these are the things they needed to do. And encourage them to memorize also phone numbers of family members in case their phones were taken away and, and held from them. And then we landed in Dubai. And I walked out with the girls, and I think half of them thought I was crazy by then. <laughs> Like, who is this weirdo that's telling us that bad things are going to happen to us? And I felt, yeah, I felt badly about that. Like, I didn't want to scare them. That wasn't my intention at all. Um, I just wanted them to be as equipped as they could with the little time that they had before um, potential freedoms were going to be withheld from them. And so I handed out notes. I sat with several of the girls um, over their layover and um, we shared some snacks, we shared stories, we laughed, we took pictures, we talked about our families, and we just did things that you do with friends. And I built um, a sweet little rapport with a couple of the girls and shared my WhatsApp number with them as well before they got on the plane and hugged them and prayed for them and wished them the best. And then I was off um, on my way home and they, they were there for several more hours before they headed to Riyadh. And then three and a half months later, this was in January of 2020, I got a WhatsApp message from Maria. And at first she was just reaching out, connecting. I think she'd probably made enough money where she could afford credit at that point. And I was really encouraged to hear that she still had her phone. That gave me a lot of hope. And she said her work situation was okay. She was with a family with six kids. She was working a lot, but she was managing at the same time, I heard from another girl um, that I had met, Beatrice, who was just also having um, just a decent time in her contract. It was her second contract, actually. She'd done one in Cutter before that. Um, so she was a little more seasoned and knew kind of what to expect. And we just kind of kept in touch. And then 
a few months later, um, after we'd just kind of been in touch every other week or so, uh, I got a message from Maria around the same time that the pandemic was really exploding across the world. And she was extremely stressed. And she shared with me that her work situation had really deteriorated, that she was being ill-treated by the family, verbally abused, uh, working from 4.30 in the morning until 10 o'clock every single day. She was the last person to eat after feeding all the children at night, slept on just a small pallet on a concrete floor, had been denied medical treatment on several occasions when she was sick, and had had her, her salary consistently cut for small infractions. I mean, months of salary withheld for basic mistakes. Uh, On top of that, the family was not only using her to clean their home from top to bottom, but loaning her out to all of their family members who also didn't have help in making her clean for them as well. So a total breach of what was in her contract and and what she was expecting. And she wanted out, um, but she didn't know how to get out. And she was willing to um, not earn any more money. And her family was willing to have her come home without without anything to show for her time in Saudi, she just wanted out. And she's sharing this all with you through WhatsApp? Yeah, occasionally I would get voice messages. If she was sharing something that was sensitive, that she was worried might be read at another time, she would do a voice message. I'm going to jump in and interrupt the story for just a moment. Sarah has shared one of Maria's voice messages with us, and we've been given permission by Maria to share this message with you. We've censored Maria's real name and her specific location in this clip. Take a listen. I want I want you to help me. Here I am in this house. Madame she is shouting for me. She called me every time. The dog. She tell me I'm I'm smelling. I work a lot. She don't give me the food. After now, I'm not eating anything, and I work a lot. I wash the I wash the hall, I clean the hall, I clean the 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 floor, I clean all those things, and the food is problem. She's shouting every time. She calling she calling me dog. She telling me I'm smelling. And don't have the peace of mind. Please help me. Because I'm tired. I'm tired. I want to back Kenya. So I just tried to encourage her and to care for her and to, um, I don't know, there wasn't a lot I could do, but I did reach out to a few friends to look for a way for her to leave her situation. Um, She was not in possession of her passport and that was a major obstacle. When I asked Maria if she was being physically or sexually abused, she told me no. Uh, It was verbal abuse and it was labor abuse. So I reached out to another uh, professional that I had been told about by Judith on the plane, who was another Kenyan advocate 
who worked for a different airline and lived in Dubai and was helping women find flights home that needed to escape. And so I was able to talk with her almost as a consultant. I spoke with her on the phone a couple of times, and then I put her in contact directly with Maria. And she said that unfortunately, because of COVID, all the flights commercially were being shut down out of Saudi Arabia and there was no way for her to get a flight home. And her only hope would have possibly been a repatriation flight if she could have gotten on one, but they were so few and far between and she would have had to have her passport in order for that to happen. And so her best advice, unfortunately, was that Maria sit tight and endure and survive. Because if she was to run away at this point, her life would be in so much more danger as an unaccompanied African woman in a Saudi Arabian society. And so that is where she is to this day. I mean, Maria has remained in her home and in her situation. Um, She has really, really endured a lot. She has chosen to remain very, very strong. I'm really, really inspired by her Um, and as she's persevered some things have slowly begun to change for her that she shared with me and her um, her employers have actually come around a bit and given her better treatment and a better situation and so she's not quite as desperate to leave as she was when she first reached out to us and I'm really really thankful that, that that has transpired in the way that it has. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to know, like, what does your ongoing relationship look like? Yeah. So she and I are in touch almost every day. I think it's it's been, for me, a really special friendship, um, one where I have been challenged almost every single day or every week to remain mindful of the plight of someone who is living without the freedoms that I enjoy every day. And it has drawn me in um, to that world in a way that otherwise I might, it might have been more easily, it might have been more easily forgotten in my day-to-day life. I think we get going into our to-do lists and our families and our responsibilities and we don't always um, step into the stories of others as deeply as we we can. And so Maria draws me into her story every time that I hear from her. She's extremely gracious. (laughs) Um, She gives me much more credit in our friendship than I deserve. But I think the reality is I'm someone who's consistently caring for her and I'm consistently encouraging her to stay strong and to persevere and I'm supporting her the best I can with um with my friendship and that means a lot because I don't think anyone else is doing that for her right now and so I'm thankful for the opportunity I'm thankful that I get to intersect with her life I'm thankful I get to pray for her and to hope for her to make it through this contract or find a way home if that's what she really needs to do. Um, And that it really truly will be the impetus that she is seeking toward a more hopeful future. Um, And I plan on staying in contact with her as long as I possibly can. And I hope that that means that she'll return to Kenya in another year because she's already done an entire year that she'll return home and that she and I will get to be friends and I'll get to go and visit her someday. Yeah. You know, we we say often that justice is in the hands of, of ordinary people. And I think 
it's one thing to um, to like kind of fly in and pronounce your own idea of what justice looks like in the life of another person. And it's another to walk with them through the darkness, to help them endure it, and to help them to discover their path towards justice. And I just see that this journey has been the latter, it seems like, for you. And I just think there's something so right about that. Thank you. Yeah, that's really well said. I think everything in me wants swift justice. And I'm, I've always had a very high justice meter. And so when I heard that she wanted out of her situation, <laughs> everything in me wanted to storm the castle and figure out, come hell or high water, how are we going to get her home? And I don't want to leave my friend in this situation. It has been much harder to stay the course knowing what she's up against every day and feeling like there isn't really any true intervention that I can offer with the state of the world right now. Um, But it has been a really beautiful, beautiful thing to know that staying in it as her friend, um, even though for me that is the less comfortable option, has been probably the more important reality of what was needed for both she and probably for me like her life is changing mine and I'm going to be different for the rest of my days because I get to know her and know her story thank you Sarah thanks for joining us my pleasure thanks for having me since this story was recorded Sarah did receive an update from Maria and I'm going to share it with you but I want you to think about something as you hear Maria's message. Fear can lead us to believe that when we step out and do something that makes us feel vulnerable on behalf of someone else, that we'll be all alone in it. But in Sarah's experience, her boldness was met with affirmation and support from the people around her. It's a beautiful testament to the way that ordinary people can ensure that systemic change actually occurs. We don't have to believe that we're all alone when we step out to fight for justice. We're better together. But sometimes we have to take the first step and talk to a stranger. So here's the update from Maria, sent via voice message in November of 2020 from a quiet stairwell in a place far from her home. It has not been easy, madam to live here in Saudi Arabia, more so in this house. Though I have some uh, little bit of lessons that I've come to learn when I'm still here. Life is tough and life is, it is, it doesn't have like life needs someone to be strong and a focused someone focused uh, person for one to achieve what she or he needs in this life others has other challenges has made me to be strong enough 
do not quit because why it be like I was from a, a well-up family I wouldn't have to related or I wouldn't have uh, put up with uh, the life that I'm staying yeah, I'm living here so it has been a good lesson the challenges has been uh, good lesson to me and so I just try to cope up with them until that day I'll make it yeah Well, I want to extend a special thanks again to Maria and Sarah Ray for sharing this story with us. If you suspect human trafficking, we want to encourage you to report it. In the United States, you can text the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 233-733. And if you're traveling abroad like Sarah was, you can call 802-872-6199. We've also linked several trafficking tip resources on our podcast webpage at theexodusroad.com slash podcast. Until All Are Free is a podcast by The Exodus Road, a nonprofit dedicated to the strategic fight against human trafficking around the world. The podcast is hosted by me, Preston Goff, and produced by Isaac Lay, and the music you've heard on the intro and outro was generously donated by City of Sound. If you'd like to support Until All Are Free, I'd love for you to subscribe wherever you're listening to this episode to be notified when our next show is available. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it would be so helpful if you took a moment to rate and review us. It really helps. For when the sky falls, you can become.